If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Indian subcontinent, North America, Southeast Asia and continental Europe all saw vicious fighting in the 1750s and 1760s as part of a major conflict now known as the Seven Years' War. It's a war that has long been overshadowed by later conflicts, like the American Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. Yet it sucked up many of Europe's leading nations, ended in humiliating defeat for the French, and supercharged Britain's rise to becoming the world's pre-eminent imperial power. Spencer Mizzen sat down with Jeremy Black, former Professor of History at the University of Exeter, to discuss everything you wanted to know about the Seven Years' War. So, Jeremy, the the Seven Years' War was among the most important conflicts of the 18th century, one that I think it's fair to say had enormous ramifications for the evolution of the British Empire and, by extension, global geopolitics. But before digging down into all of that in detail, I wonder if you could give us a quick introduction to the Seven Years' War. Who were the main combatants and when and where did they clash? The Seven Years' War was really a parallel struggle 
On the one hand, it was a European war between, on the one side, Frederick the Great, Frederick II of Prussia, and on the other side, his opponents, Elizabeth of Russia, uh, Maria Theresa of Austria, and Louis XV of France. The other war was between Britain and France. Now, both these wars were linked because Britain was the ally of Frederick the Great and In 1758, Britain sent troops to the continent, which helped the Prussians against the French. But equally, the wars were separate, because Britain never went to war with Russia or Austria. So they were parallel wars, but also separate wars. And what were the main landmark milestone events in the conflict that we could cover off before going into greater detail? The main landmark from the British point of view was the conquest of French Empire, particularly the victory at Quebec in 1759, which was instrumental in the British conquering the French possessions in Canada. Quebec fell that year, Montreal fell the following year, and that was the end of French Canada. But on top of that, there were other British victories, particularly the defeat of the French Navy in 1759, the same year, the so-called Year of Victories, with the French Navy defeated off the coasts of both Portugal and Brittany. And then also, there were major battles on the continent, of which the largest one in which the British were involved was a victory at Minden over the French, again in 1759. The conflict came to an end in 1763 with, in essence, two peace treaties. Uh, There was the peace treaty that ended the war on the continent, with Prussia preserving its territories, and in essence, everybody was exhausted on the continent, but a key element had been that Tsarina Elizabeth had died in 1762, and she'd been succeeded by a Tsar who was more pro-Prussian, Peter III. As far as the British were concerned, there was a peace in 1763, the Peace of Paris, and that brought to an end both the long-standing war with France and also a shorter conflict with Spain, which had seen hostilities in 1762. Great. Now, my next question is one that was submitted by Nick Anderson42 on social media. And actually, this is quite a, a popular question, and that is, how long was the Seven Years' War? Now, I can imagine a lot of our listeners will now be pointing out that the answer to that question is, is kind of in the title. But I understand there is some debate among historians about how long it lasted. Well, that's an excellent question, Nick, about the length of the Seven Years' War, and well done, because in fact, fighting between the British and the French in North America, in the Ohio Valley, started in 1754, with large-scale hostilities from 1755. And in America, where it tends to be called the French and Indian War, it's dated from 1754 to 1763. 
Listeners may then say, well, why is it called the Seven Years' War? And the answer is because there was no formal declaration of war until 1756, when the French invaded Minorca, a British possession in the Mediterranean, and that led to a formal declaration of war between Britain and France. And it's also in 1756 that Frederick the Great, Frederick II of Prussia, attacks Saxony and Austria, launching the Seven Years' War on the continent. Okay, so let's look at the conflict in a bit more detail then. I want to start with a question that's really popular among our search engine queries, and that is, what caused the Seven Years' War? Why did this enormous global conflict erupt? Well, big wars often have small causes. Um, in many senses, the small immediate cause of the breakout of hostilities in North America was the competing interests in expansion, the French seeking to link their colonies of Louisiana and Canada and to flesh out that link, whereas the British colonists, particularly from Virginia, were pressing westwards across the Appalachians into the Ohio River Valley uh, system, and that's why fighting broke out in 1754. But why does that lead, and the questioners are asking a really good question, why does that lead to a bigger war? And that is because both Britain and France see at that period their political destiny as involving maritime supremacy, and in a sense, with maritime supremacy, it's a winner-take-all kind of struggle. So, in practical terms, although the war begins over the Ohio River Valley, it's really a war for British and the French over more general uh, Atlantic mastery. So, they were very much um, burgeoning imperial powers, jostling for supremacy on the global stage. Britain and France are very much burgeoning imperial powers jostling, as you say, for supremacy. And on top of that, they have a track record of enmity. They'd been at war from 1689 to 1697, from 1702 to 1713, um, from 1744, although fighting starting in 43, to 1748. So from the point of view of much of the political nation and the government in each state, this is just a resumption of normal services. In other words, from their point of view, rather than explaining why war is breaking out, you have to explain why there had been a period of peace since 1748. And the same was true on the continent, that there had been fighting on the continent up to 1748. There'd then been a war panic between Prussia and Russia at the beginning of the 1750s. There had been tension in 53 and 55. So in many senses, the outbreak of hostilities in 56 is less important than this long-term tension for hegemony between Prussia, Austria and Russia. That leads me quite nicely on to a question which was submitted by Andrew O'Brien. And he asks, what were the comparative strengths of Britain and France in 1756? Was it a lightweight island against a heavyweight continental superpower? Well, first, France certainly was a major power. 
There's no two ways about that. It had a very large army. Its army under Marshal Saxe had done very well in the campaigns of 1745, 46, 47 and 48, including beating the British and their allies in what was then the Austrian Netherlands. We would call it Belgium. And in the first campaigns of the war on the continent, the French again started off by doing well. They captured Minorca from the British in 1756, and in 1757 they overran the electorate of Hanover, George II of Britain's other major possession. So France had a lot of strengths. Its population is bigger than Britain. It has, as a result, significant revenues, and it is an important maritime and imperial state. Indeed, it has has the second largest navy in the world and is allied to Spain, which has the third largest. On the other hand, Britain also has significant strengths, and it would be wrong to call it a lightweight power. It is the leading naval power in the world. Indeed, it remains the leading naval power in the world until it's passed by its then ally, the United States, in 1943, 1944, depending upon which class of warship you're talking about. And the British Navy rests not just on the strength of its warships and crew who have very good fire discipline. It also has an extremely sophisticated naval infrastructure with important dockyards at Portsmouth and Plymouth, which are one of the biggest, as it were, products of the British state. And it has an excellent system of a parliamentary funded national debt, which enables it to keep going in war despite running up unprecedented levels of debt. So Britain also is a major power. Indeed, we have the two major powers of the Atlantic going head to head, with Spain, the third major power, subsequently coming in on the French side. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Right, I've got next two questions here are, are kind of re- related, so I might ask you them at the same time, if that's okay, Jeremy. 
The first one is from somebody calling themselves the Golden from Golden. Their question is, how did the Seven Years' War erupt from the backwoods of the Ohio Valley to become a global conflict? The second question is from Julio Salazar, who asks, is it true that it was partly triggered by the actions of a young lieutenant called George Washington? Now, George Washington is obviously somebody of a huge name recognition. What was his role in the start of this conflict? George Washington was part of the Virginia landed elite, which was very interested in acquiring land uh, and as with the status that went with it, and were very interested in using the Ohio River Valley system as the basis for their landed power. Um, they also, this landed elite, were militia officers in the Virginia militia. And in a sense, there was a synergy between private enterprise and local governments, uh, provincial government, we would say. And the two of those helped to trigger the conflict in the Ohio Valley. But the key element was, what would the ministries back in London make of this? And in fact, the, it was not inevitable that this would lead to conflict. What was really interesting was that in late 1754, Thomas Duke of Newcastle, who was the leading minister in London, the Secretary of State for the Southern Department, therefore responsible for relations with Virginia, he felt under political pressure unless he took a strong line against France. And I think that's a key point because there were others who were a bit more hesitant about this, but Newcastle felt it necessary. He was worried about, as it were, being outflanked by those claiming to be patriots who would be more interested in a forward policy in America. And the result of this was that Newcastle goes along with these ministers when they demand the dispatch of troops to North America in 1755. He also goes along with the argument that the Royal Navy should stop the French sending comparable dispatch of troops. Now, it ought to be made clear that Newcastle does not want war with France. And indeed, Britain doesn't declare war with France in 1755. So the French government also, there are some ministers who are particularly concerned with bad relations with Britain. They want to see the British taken down a peg. And that's particularly the Ministry of the Marine, which was responsible not just for the Navy, but also the French colonies, an interesting linkage. But there are other French ministers who are more interested in the issues and problems of great power relations on the continent of Europe. They're more concerned with how France ought to operate vis-a-vis -vis Austria and Prussia, and they, as it were, also want to see war avoided. And I, you know, I've done a, a book on Anglo-French relations in this period, British foreign policy in this period. I called it the mid-century crisis. And if you read the diplomatic dispatches, the French envoy and his British counterparts are doing their utmost to try and avoid a full-scale war. And what you have to think about here is the concept of no peace beyond the line, a concept that had originally been developed for the Caribbean, the West 
West Indies with the argument that the English, the French, the Spaniards, the Dutch could fight each other there, but without there having to be war between the two powers, or those various powers. The same policy was incidentally followed in terms of hostilities between the French East India Company, the English East India Company, and other East India Companies, particularly the Dutch. So, in essence, what, what you've got is a situation where it isn't inevitable that the hostilities, which, as your listener asks, do indeed begin in 1754, it's not inevitable that that would necessarily lead to war. To what extent did Washington's involvement in this conflict advance his career and burnish his reputation? I don't think Washington's role enhanced his career because he was forced to surrender to the French. There was a humiliation. On the other hand, what incidentally you could argue was that all of the uh, political elite in the 13 colonies realised at that stage the need to ally to Britain. In fact, the idea of American independence is very, very, very remote at this period. And it's entirely appropriate that George Washington is part of an imperial project because the French in Canada, who had been seen by the American colonists as assistants to the Native Americans, uh, the French are actually finally defeated by British regulars with the assistance of American provincial troops. So that kind of symbiosis, that synergy, is the key lesson that is taken out of the war. And indeed, at the beginning of the 1760s, the new king, George III, who comes to the throne in 1760, and the successes of the imperial forces against the French and the Spaniards, culminating in the Peace of Paris in 1763, are greeted with great celebration in the 13 colonies. Okay, so my next question comes from MHFQ on social media, who asks, what unlikely alliances resulted from the Seven Years' War? This was very much a conflict of alliances, wasn't it? Yes, it was a conflict of alliances. Britain and Prussia were allied, despite the fact that for the 1740s and early 50s, they'd had poor relations with each other. Not war, but poor relations. Austria and France were allied, despite the fact that they'd been fighting against each other as recently as 1748. So it does seem, it was known, in fact, as the diplomatic revolution, and part of that is that Britain, which had been allied with Austria against France since 1689, no longer has good relations with Austria. They're not at war with each other, but their relations become very cool indeed. So, yes, what it shows is the flexibility of the diplomatic system. And linked to that, for those of us, all of us interested in history, it shows how cautious you have to be about referring to a power as your obvious or natural ally or enemy. The context can change and all foreign policy, all strategy whether you're looking at the 18th century or today, is a matter of prioritisation. 
You have competing goals, competing options, and how you put the emphasis on one versus another is a result of choice. And I think this is a very important point because part of the excitement of history, part of the reason why we can debate these points is I can have a view on the choices made, whether I think they were appropriate or not, and listeners can have views and their views may be different and their views may also be appropriate. So what we have to try and do is to recreate the circumstances in which people in the past made choices. TRS York asks, at the time, how much a part of everyday civilian life was the Seven Years' War? To what extent were people invested in the conflict, especially with the battlefields being so far away? Well, that's, again, a very interesting question. I think what I would say is this, that the armed forces were as a percentage of the population. Now, we can't give a precise figure because there's no national census till 1801. But the armed forces were large. A warship of that period, for example, a significant warship, might well carry a crew, including the Marines, of about 800 men. And the British are deploying of that size of warship over 80. I mean, they obviously have a far larger navy as a whole. So you're talking about, for a much smaller population than today, armed forces that are larger and all of those people of course have siblings parents etc you were then talking about the effect on coastal trade of french and spanish privateering you're talking about the extent to which war disrupts commerce pushes up food prices for example food imported from the uh, baltic to help feed the population and you're talking also about industries such as uh, shipbuilding, the manufacture of cannon, the manufacture of gunpowder, all of which are war-related. On top of that, people follow those who were literate followed the news because the news and the newspapers were absolutely dominated by war news. And even those who were illiterate knew about it. Newspapers were read aloud in the streets, in taverns, in coffee houses and the diaries we have from those periods indicate that people of quite humble social rank nevertheless followed the news and knew what was going on. Did the conflict broadly receive popular support? In its initial stages it went badly. The British did not achieve their goals in North America in 55, 56, 57. This led to a lot of criticism. It helps to lead to the fall of the Newcastle government in 56. And I think it's fair to say that there was a large degree of popular unhappiness. In 57, a war-winning coalition is put together. In essence, it's the Duke of Newcastle and the established system with William Pitt the Elder and the, as it were, his ability to tap into patriot ideology and also in particular, although he was an opposition Whig, his ability to persuade the Tories to go along and be optimistic about things. And I think it's fair to say that as a result of that and of successes which start to come in at a high rate from 58 onwards, the popularity of the war rises dramatically despite its cost and despite the continued 
include economic disruption. So yes, the war becomes a popular war, and the next significant war, the War of American Independence, which sees Britain from 78 at war also with France, in turn is held up as much less successful, and as it were, one war helps to overshadow the next. So let's talk about William Pitt the Elder a little bit more, because he's the subject of my next question, which was submitted by Louis Pilou. That person asked, what was William Pitt the Elder's role in the war? Why was he a champion of the conflict? And how much of an impact was that on public opinion, his involvement in banging the drum for war? William Pitt the Elder was, in some respects, I mean, I've done a couple of biographies of him. In some respects, you could see him as an unattractive character. He could be a megalomaniac. He could be somebody that took the view that it's my way or no way, etc., etc. He was not easy to work with. On the other hand, he was able to conceptualise a vision of Britain's role in the war, which won widespread parliamentary support and also led to Parliament being willing to vote very large sums of money. And this was very significant in the sessions, the parliamentary sessions of 58, 59, 60 and 61. And it's worth bearing in mind that most of the government, including, crucially, the Duke of Newcastle, are in the House of Lords. You need a House of Commons political manager. And that was William Pitt the Elder's key ability. His rivals earlier had been Henry Fox, who felt unable to cope with the political crises of 56 to 57, and Thomas Robinson, who also felt unable to cope with those crises. So Pitt's very megalomania, his sense that he was the man for the moment, actually was very important to him being willing to take on what was a very difficult task. He was less important in terms of the finances. Uh, Newcastle actually managed those. And it's now generally agreed that the Navy largely ran itself uh, under the Board of Admiralty. But Pitt's very significant for political support and actually also for debating with George II and with Newcastle the distribution of army forces in particular. Great. Now, got a question here from Seaman Visibles, which is, did the Seven Years' War boost German nationalism? Oh, that's a very interesting question. I would say the Seven Years' War did not boost German nationalism because in that war, most of the German principalities lined up with Austria against Frederick the Great. So Frederick the Great was allied to only a small number of rulers, principally the Landgrave of Hessen Castle, the uh, Elector of Hanover, and other smaller North German Protestant states. If anything, it helped to lessen German nationalism, not least because many Germans perceived the struggle, as they had perceived the earlier Prussian attacks on Austria, as a religious struggle, as another state of the Thirty Years' War. So I would argue that German nationalism really gets going in 1813, 1814, with the driving out of Napoleon and the French from Germany. 
This next question was a really popular one. Um, lots of people ask this on social media, among them Hugh Burkmeyer. He wants to know, to what extent is a description of the Seven Years' War as the First World War accurate? Well, it's certainly a, a, a war that's enormously far-flung. I've mentioned uh, Manila in the Philippines, there is also extensive fighting in India uh, uh, and in Indian waters. Uh, there's fighting in West Africa, where the British take the French slave stations. There is fighting in the Mediterranean. There is fighting in continental Europe. There is fighting in the Caribbean, particularly the British capture of Havana in 1762. And there is fighting in North America. Obviously, though, China or Japan are not involved. And given that that constitutes over a quarter of the world's population, that's worthy of note. So you have to be careful. It depends what you mean by a world war. I would say it is a global war of the European system. But on the other hand, you might argue you'd already seen that with the struggle between the Dutch and the Spaniards, you know, in the late uh, 16th, early 17th century, which had involved conflict because Portugal was an ally of Spain. That had involved conflict from the East Indies, the coasts of Africa, say in Angola, for example, uh, the Mediterranean and the Caribbean. So I think one has to be careful. There is a global aspect to it but it doesn't involve all the states of the world. It's not global in the sense that World War II, I think you could fairly describe as global, even though the actual commitment in that war of most of Latin America beyond a declaration of hostilities is rather limited. So, Jeremy, how did this war come to an end? You've touched on it at the beginning. I just wonder if you can go into a little bit more detail on, on, on how the Seven Years' War concluded. And can we say that Britain came out of it victorious? Britain certainly came out of it victorious, although with a heavy debt, which is to help cause the problems with the American colonies, and also with the problems that victory can bring in terms of unrealistic expectations. On the other hand, yes, it was clearly victorious. As I mentioned, I've written a book on uh, Britain and, and the mid-century crisis, and there was an enormous sense of alarm, concern about French back Jacobite invasions as late as 1759, a worry about what might happen if we'd lose. And it was the most successful war we waged until, I suppose, you could say the last stages of the Napoleonic Wars. So, it is a triumph for the British, and it was perceived in France and Spain as a major defeat. I think it was fairly clear by the fall of New France in Canada, in other words, in 1760 that the British had won, particularly because that came on the top of the destruction of much of the French fleet the previous year. After that, French policymakers were reduced to a hope that they could change things by bringing Spain into the war on their side. 
And I suppose you could argue that they appeared successful in doing so, but the rapid defeat of the Spaniards in 1762, with the loss of both Havana and Manila, indeed, interesting to note, the Americans were to do the same in 1898. What I think one could fairly say is that that made it absolutely clear that the French had lost. And at that point, British politics starts to spin into disorder as politicians row over which colonies we should hold on to. Nobody is debating for a second whether we've won or lost. And what impact did this victory have on the growth of the British Empire? I mean, is this, is this a moment that Britain becomes a truly global power? I think it's fair to say that Britain is a truly global power by the end of the war. It has decisively defeated the French and the Spaniards of the other major naval powers, all of which are European at that stage. The Dutch are, although they're no longer allied to the British, they really are sort of in difficulties and hesitant about fighting them. They fight them only in the latter stages of the War of American Independence. Russia doesn't really want to fight the British. So naval power is the key element. There's no air power in this period. And as a result of that, the power that dominates the sea is the power that is going to dominate oceanic-based empires. There are, of course, land-based empires, things like the Manchu Empire of China, but that's not uh, in the equation. China does not have a long-distance fleet in this period. It had done so in the early 15th century, but it no longer does so. So is it then safe to say that the expansion of the British Empire over the following decades, that that simply couldn't have happened if, if Britain hadn't been victorious in the Seven Years' War? I think it's very clear that, as you suggest, that there is no way that the British imperial expansion of the 1760s and early 1770s would have been impossible without victory in the Seven Years' War. On the other hand, from the French point of view, they get the chance for a rematch in 1778, a rematch which exploits British weakness, because Britain's facing a civil war within the empire, and again, British imperial expansion in the 1780s, for example, the establishment of the first base in what's now Malaysia in 1788 is only possible because the French Navy had been defeated in 82 at the Battle of the Saints. And then the British have to fight them all over again in the French Revolutionary Wars and culminating with the Napoleonic Wars with major victory at Trafalgar in 1805. And it's in the after echo of that that the British can feel that whatever goes wrong on the continent, they have a good prospect of maintaining territorial integrity from invasion and also in pursuing imperial growth and expansion. Now, speaking about the legacy of the war, here's another question from Seaman Vitterbowles on social media, who asks, how did the Seven Years' War contribute to the French and American revolutions? Well, the French and American revolutions, in a sense, emerge from a multiplicity of causes. You could argue that the American Revolution is in part a taxpayer's revolution against the demands arising from the British Empire's 
indebtedness after the Seven Years' War, but clearly other factors play a role. It's not just due to that. As far as the French Revolution is concerned, again, in part, it's to do with French indebtedness after the um, French intervention in the American Revolution. But I'd say there are many other factors. I would be wary about tracing a line from the Seven Years' War to the French Revolution. Insofar as France lost prestige, the crucial loss of prestige was its failure in the Dutch crisis of 1787. But there was nothing inevitable about a revolution when Louis XVI called the Estates General in 1789. And I think uh, with all breakdowns of authority, one has to look at the short term. That plays a key role in determining what path is followed from what might otherwise be a long-term crisis. I mean, we can all look around the world today you can find in any circumstances what might appear to be an inevitable crisis in the long term. But actually, we know that the doings in the short term of individuals and groups are absolutely instrumental to what happens. And finally, Jeremy, here's a question from TRS York, and that is, how significant are the Seven Years' War's effects on the world today? Does it still in any way affect global geopolitics? I think, first of all, you end up with an Anglophone North America, with both Canada and America very much different aspects of not just British or English language, but also British political culture. The Americans, in many respects, draw on a strain of opposition British political culture of the 18th century, the Canadians on a different strain, but they're very much 18th century constructions. Also, the Seven Years' War, which, for example, saw Clive's victory at Plathy over uh, the Nawab of Bengal, is instrumental. That period is instrumental in Britain becoming the major imperial power in India as opposed to France. So again, that's very significant for what happens in South Asia. That was Jeremy Black, former professor of history at the University of Exeter. Jeremy is the author of The Seven Years' War, A Study in British Combined Strategy. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.